Well, it's great to be with you all again, albeit virtually. Uh, Josiah warned me of some of the weirdness of this dynamic, and so uh, thank you for welcoming me into your family room, which is a thing I never thought I'd say at the beginning of a sermon. Um, at least I do have one focal point instead of many, so that makes my job easier. Uh, like Josiah said, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Eric. I'm a Bible teacher at CCA, uh, and it's just great to be able to push forward together in the book of Hebrews, specifically Hebrews 9. So here's my game plan for today. I want to go through a brief reminder, just kind of an overview of where we're at, where we're picking up. I want to go through our text. I'll read it, and then I'll pray, and then we'll jump right in, all right? So by way of reminder, the author of Hebrews has been comparing, in chapter 9 specifically, the Old Testament, or excuse me, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So last week in verses 1 through 15, you guys talked about the insufficiency of the Old Covenant, and how it therefore, as Josiah said earlier, pointed to a new reality or the new covenant. We looked at those worship regulations and the details and how ultimately they were insufficient and how there needed to be something more. And then right at the back half of last week in verse 15, it mentioned Christ as the mediator of the new covenant. And so that's right where we're picking up. So if 9, 1 through 15 talked about the details of the Old Covenant and their insufficiency, 9, 16 through 28 will talk about the implications of the New Covenant and how Christ fulfills it. So let's turn there now. Hebrews 9, 16 through 28. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes place, uh, takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and water with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that, um, that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Verse 24, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself." And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with our sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we are grateful for your word. And just as Josiah said, we, we pray for ears uh, to listen to your word and to sit under it. Um, and Lord, we pray that it would form us in these trying times and lead us, Lord, into what we should do. Uh, Lord, we pray for conviction, uh, both individually and as the church, to act. 
and these tumultuous times. And so, Lord, we just start with your word right here, and we pray that um, in some way we would be changed and that we'd be driven out. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, in his book, The Great Boer War, recounts a tale describing the details of the war. Here's an excerpt. He says this, A small detachment of British troops, surprised by an overwhelming enemy force, fell back under heavy fire. Their wounded lay in a perilous position facing certain death. They all realized they had to come immediately under the protection of the flag of the Red Cross. All they had was a piece of white cloth, but no red paint. And so they used the blood from their own wounds to make a large cross on that white cloth. Their attackers respected that grim flag as it was held aloft, and the British wounded were brought to safety. In Doyle's account of the war, blood communicated. Blood was effective. That grim sight of blood elevated among the battlefield provided the safety for the British troops to retreat back under cover. As the wounded sat injured under that banner of blood, there was a ceasefire. This is similar to what we see in Hebrews 9. More than the blood of soldiers, the blood of Christ covers our sin and delivers us to a kingdom without pain or tears or frustration, or injustice, or unrest. To unpack this, I want to look at three things laid out here in our passage. First, I want to look at the need for blood in verses 16 through 22. Next, I want to look at the provision of blood in verses 23 and 24. Lastly, I want to look at the sufficiency of blood in verses 25 through 28. So let's jump in. Point one, the need for blood, verses 16 through 22. If you look back down at 16 through 18, the author of Hebrews is talking about the fact that a death has taken place that therefore makes a will involving an inheritance available to us. Now, it's important to note that the context of this will, this death, and this inheritance is set against the backdrop of the Old Testament. Specifically, he's invoking language of Exodus 24 to explain the efficacy of this covenant, this will, this inheritance, and ultimately this blood. If you remember, Mosaic law required sacrificial blood for the initial purification of God's people as well as the sanctuary. And so, to pursue that backdrop, to better understand the context that the author is situating us in, let's just briefly look at Exodus 24, 3 through 8. I'll read it here, but you can turn there quickly if, if you can. Here's what it says in verse 3 of Exodus 24. Moses came and told the people all the words of Yahweh and all of the ordinances. And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which Yahweh have spoken we will do. Interesting. If you know anything about the Old Testament, that should uh, interest you a little bit. And Moses wrote all the words of Yahweh, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of all the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to Yahweh. And Moses took, here it is, half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, again, interesting, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it upon the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant 
which Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. The Exodus account recalls how Moses took the blood of the slain animals and essentially sprinkled it everywhere. In response and before that purification rite, the people said that interesting phrase, all, we, all of this that has been spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. And again, if you know anything about the Old Testament and the Israelites or even us as humans, um, you know that in the Old Testament, they did not obey. That is maybe the overarching summary of the Israelites is a lack of obedience. And so therefore, everything that was significant dripped in blood, people and places and things. And ultimately, the emphasis on blood shows us that entering into a covenant with the living God is not trivial. It's not frivolous. In fact, it is deadly and dangerous business if properly understood. And so therefore, due to sin, death is now required for justice. The, the idea is that we knew the sin, uh, we knew sin in the garden. We knew the deal. God was very clear in the garden. Likewise, God was very clear in the covenants throughout the Old Testament, and he's very clear to us today. We, have every, we had in the garden everything at our disposal except one thing, and God told us the ultimate idea that the wages of sin would in fact be death. And yet, onward we go, onward the Israelites went, and ultimately onward and Adam, Adam and Eve went as well, pursuing death. And so therefore justice is necessary and blood is the instrument that brings about that justice. In fact, the Judeo-Christian worldview, it's important to note, it takes justice this seriously to such an extent that it necessitates blood. Now, that's the context of Exodus 24. Those were the old covenant stipulations. The institution of the new covenant takes place upon Christ's death, and it is the focal point of the entire Bible. So, why is there a need for blood? Why did Jesus have to die? Ultimately, Jesus is fulfilling the penalty that we deserve due to breaking our covenant with God. God demands justice, and in Christ, on the cross, as the true and better sacrifice, he is both just and justifier. And so therefore, by Christ's death, going back to 16 through 18, we receive the inheritance of that will, not because of anything that we have done, but because of Christ's obedience on our behalf, because Christ upheld that covenant on our behalf, because Christ took that justice, that that penalty that we deserve. And so by Jesus' death, we are purchased back from what our transgressions deserve. And it's important to note how much better and fuller this is than those things offered in the Day of Atonement in the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant made you ritually pure, but it did not purchase you back from anything that your transgressions deserved. And so on the Day of Atonement, it was for one people group in one geographical location at one time for one year, retroactively. Jesus is the complete opposite of that. What the author of Hebrews is trying to say is Jesus is the better priest of a better covenant because his death actually brought you back from what your sins deserve. And it is not only retroactive for one year, it's permanently retroactive, but it's also infinitely proactive. That's why it's so much better. At, at risk of blasphemy, this is something like um, 
Papa John's, you know, better ingredients, better pizza, Papa John's. This is like, you know, better sacrifice, better salvation, Jesus Christ. Just take that for whatever you think, just whatever the case. The point is, there's a need for blood, and in Christ, we have it. That leads me to the second point in verses 23 and 24, the provision of blood. So in verse 23, it says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites. And tune in here. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. It's interesting to note that the implication of the second clause of verse 23 is teaching that Christ's sacrifice in some way cleansed heaven itself. So now, this isn't implying that God or heaven is intrinsically defiled or ultimately in need of purification, but the passage is saying that the severity of our sin is entirely polluting. And so therefore, Christ himself needs to provide a salvation to exceed the level of our sin. If you don't understand the the comprehensive nature of our sin, just take a moment and and look around. (laughs) We're in a very unique situation uh, in history right now, and uh, we see its effects everywhere. And now, maybe more than ever, we need to trust a Savior who is both loving and strong enough to deal with that sin. And in Christ, we have him. Christ cleansed heaven itself on our behalf. It's a comprehensive cleansing. Salvation is all of God and all of grace. Moving on to verse 24, I just want to look at one phrase that finishes the sentence. I'll read the whole sentence and then I'll, I'll, I'll focus in on that phrase. Here it says, for, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. And here it is, on our behalf. So if you remember in verse 15, the author of Hebrews, and he does it in 7 and 4 as well, he, uh, he introduces this idea of mediator. Christ is the better mediator of the better covenant. In verse 24, on our behalf is tapping into this idea of mediation, but it's also introducing a new idea of advocacy. Now, what's the difference between mediation and advocacy? Scholar Dane Ortland says this, mediation has the idea of standing in the middle of two parties, bringing them together. Advocacy is similar, but it has the idea of aligning oneself with another. An intercessor stands in between two parties. An advocate doesn't simply stand between the two parties, but he steps over and joins the one party as he approaches the other. 1 John 2.1, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So what does this mean? What are the implications? Christ is not only your king, he's also your friend. He's not only over us, he's also beside us. If you are in Christ, you have an advocate speaking on your behalf. What could we need right now more than an all-loving, all-powerful, gentle, and meek advocate speaking on your behalf? I can't think of anything more that I need right now than that and that the world needs right now than that. We have him in Christ Jesus because of the provision of blood. If you are in Christ, you can approach the Father and the world with calm confidence. 2020 surprised all of us, but it didn't surprise him. 
And so if we are in him, if we are trusting him, he is faithful and just to come alongside us, to convict us, to lead us, and to be gentle towards us. Our sin in the brokenness of the world, it feels more sinful and more broken after we become Christians as opposed to before. Because we understand sort of how it should be. We understand the vision of God and how he instructs the world to ultimately operate. And so, especially in a time like this, we may be prone to sort of be cast into this abject despair. This is exactly what Christ's on our behalf, verse 24, advocacy is for. It's God's way of encouraging us to just not throw in the towel, to live in the tension. His advocacy speaks louder than the brokenness of the world, and it speaks louder than our failures. A 17th century uh, pastor, Thomas Goodwin, says this, Jesus suffers with you. He is as tender in his affections to you as he ever was, that he might be moved to pity you. He is willing to suffer, wounded with your miseries, so that he might be your merciful high priest. The apostle affirms that this is his power and perfection and strength of love that makes him thus able and powerful to take our miseries into his heart. That's the type of provision of blood that we have. Let's move to verses 25 through 28 and consider the sufficiency of blood. Let's look at verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. And I'll pause there. Again, a reminder, verse 25 is saying this single offering is sufficient for all followers of all time, bringing back that idea of 16 through 22. It's not merely for one people group and one geographical location at one point in history. Let's just consider the implications of this. Is it possible to overestimate the importance of the death of Christ for the, life, for the lives of both unbelievers and believers? It's not. In fact, I think we constantly underestimate it. Instead of making it sort of the burning white hot core focal point, instead we situate it among a lot of other things. And that is, in fact, to almost eliminate it entirely. Think about it this way. So um, five years ago, it'll be five years in October, I think. Meg, I know you're watching. Um, five years in October, we got married. My wife and I got married. And so there was one single moment, therefore, that defined, it sort of encapsulated everything leading up to that day, and then it defines everything afterwards. In other words, it's not like we have a big marriage ceremony every day to commemorate our marriage. No, it is one event that sort of summarizes and defines everything thereafter. That momentous event is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, such that we with unveiled faces can really see and behold his beauty and his glory. 
And that is, that is demonstrated, therefore, in the differences between the covenants. And so, verse 26, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Again, comparing these two covenants, okay? So in some sense, verse 26 is saying, The old covenant was many times, the new covenant was once and for all. The old was temporary, the new is permanent. The old is a shadow, the new is the substance. The old is a beam of light, the new is the sun itself. The old is a tributary, the new is the rushing Mississippi River. The old is another's blood, the new is Christ's blood himself. Consider Christ in the Lord's Supper saying, this is my blood of the covenant. That's what he means. So the author of Hebrews wants you to know that there is a better sacrifice with better blood leading you to a better place with sufficient deliverance at the highest cost, giving you full assurance. John Piper says this, do you see the connection between the once and for all death of Christ and the totality of your sins and the sins of all God's people? It isn't some sins or certain kinds of sins or past sins only but sin and sin absolutely that Christ put away for all his people. So the forgiveness of justification is the forgiveness of all our sins, past, present, and future. That's what happened when Christ died. Moving on to verse 27, here's what it says. And just as it is appointed for one man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered, going into verse 28, once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, I'm going to pause there. Before we go on to 28, it's important to recognize that regardless of your successes or failures, your accomplishments or your lack thereof, if we know Jesus as Lord, verse 27 and a little bit of 28, he will surely come back for us. That should redeem your past, fortify your present, and give you hope for your future. Okay, verse 28 Jesus as Lord will surely come back to us, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The author of Hebrews here is using the imagery of the day of atonement to demonstrate how Christians should be eagerly awaiting Christ's return. So N.T. Wright, a scholar, summarizes what the day of atonement would have looked like for the Jews so we can understand verse 28 a little better. Here's what N.T. Wright says. Jews of the first century would have been familiar with how the ritual of the Day of Atonement worked. After the preliminaries had been completed, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with the sacrificial blood to make the annual atonement for his people. He would then reemerge, both to declare that the sign of forgiveness had once again been performed and to set about the work of dealing with the problems that remained in the community, the practical outworking of the ritual. The writer has this picture in mind, the writer of Hebrews. Jesus, the true high priest, has gone into heaven, the heavenly sanctuary, and will reappear. And at the moment, his followers are eagerly awaiting for him. I think many of us, when we consider this eagerly await for him, many of us have slipped into the idea that we are to await Christ's return like a criminal awaits uh, his sentence on death row. That is not the posture of waiting on Christ's second coming. If you are in Christ, repentant in faith, 
your posture of eagerly awaiting or anticipating his return should be like that of a schoolboy eagerly awaiting summer, or a teacher for that matter. This idea that we should be eagerly anticipating him uh, downloads into our culture right now. Maybe. One thing that we all can agree on right now is that we're exhausted. We're exhausted from maybe trying to get our points across, or like Josiah said, from social media exhaustion, from inundation. Maybe you've even engaged in a spat in the comment section. That's never a good idea. You're exhausted maybe from your news cycle. It's causing anxiety. Uh, We're fearful. We're frustrated. And many of us are just ready to throw in the towel. Maybe now, in 2020, in seemingly the year of Armageddon, we as Christians are going to learn more than ever what it means to eagerly await for him. Maybe our hearts will actually yearn for the peace that Christ promises. Well, it begs a question, um, who are we waiting for? Who is he? What is he like? To answer that question, I want to turn to the Gospels, one in specific, and consider the heart of Christ. In the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 89 chapters, there's only one location where Jesus tells us about his very heart. Maybe you know it. It's Matthew 11, 28 through 30, where he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Once again, I cannot think of anything more than we need, that we need right now than meekness, gentleness, light burdens, easy yokes, rest. That's the one that you eagerly await for. And Hebrews has been showing us all along. Consider that in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, Jesus is superior to the prophets. In 1, 3 through 14, it's showing us that Jesus is superior to the angels. In 3, 1 through 6, Jesus is superior to Moses. In chapters 4, 5, and 7, Jesus is superior to the great high priesthood. In chapters 9, as we've seen here, and then 10, as we will see probably next week, Jesus is the superior sacrifice. So in light of all of this, a few questions. Does your mind return frequently to the truth of Christ's coming? When your mind turns to the truth of his appearing, does your heart want it? Are you eagerly anticipating it? And do you, like the early church, pray for his second coming? And while we do that, while we ask ourselves those questions, we can know that we can have confident assurance because Jesus is the better and permanent sacrifice. You know that when you sin and when there is brokenness in the world, we have an advocate in Jesus. Furthermore, we know that our great high priest pleads on our behalf in heaven because he has already sacrificed himself on earth. We eagerly anticipate his return. What better time than this? And maybe a little more directly, we should understand that a casual consumerist approach to Christianity is just not going to cut it. Are we being more formed by our Bibles or our news feeds? Are we being more formed by social media or the word of God? Are we sort of rehearsing talking points or are we digging for the truth contained in God's word that is more relevant now than ever? 
Are we being quick to listen or are we being quick to speak? Remember, this is serious business. It deals with blood. It's not trivial. It's not frivolous. And yet, remember above all that Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart and he's able to sympathize with you. We've been talking about these covenants inaugurated with blood. And the one uh, that comes to mind maybe first that I saved until now is the one in Genesis 15. I wonder if you remember it. It involves an ancient Near East treaty called a suzerainty vassal treaty. And in Genesis 15, we understand that in this treaty, right, they couldn't just take a piece of paper and sign on the dotted line. Right? In ancient antiquity, um, they were more likely to interact their sort of covenants or treaties um, with these rituals that were pretty severe and that involved blood. And this is, in all likelihood, another sort of idea that the author of Hebrews has in mind. And so, therefore, these public treaties, as I said before, they were called suzerainty vassal treaties. And, and here's how that would work. So let's say you have two warring kingdoms, right? And one king dominates the other king, um, and there's pretty much, here's the deal, you can either die or um, you can pledge your um, servitude to me. Okay, so that's how that would work. And so, again, the king, the lower king, which is the vassal, um, wouldn't really sign on a dotted line. He had to perform this ritual to prove to the winning king, the suzerain, um, that he would pledge his faithfulness to him. And so here's what would happen. Uh, In all likelihood, they would take animals and they'd cut them in half, right? Blood. And they'd split the animals on either side, right? And they'd make this aisle. So then the vassal, the lesser king, would walk through the aisle of bloody animal carcasses, essentially. And what would that, that would be communicating, he would be saying, if I fail in my obedience to you, let what happened to these animals happen to me. And the, the suzerain, the winning king would observe this and say, okay, that's sufficient. And this is the context. This is what we see in Genesis 15. So let me just turn there really quick as we close. You'll note there's a couple important differences. Here's verse 9. God said to him, Abraham, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, and he cut them in half, and he laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Okay, these are the Old Testament signs of Yahweh. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, to your offspring, I give this land. What just happened? Yahweh, the suzerain, the dominating king himself walked through the pieces not the vassal, not Abraham. Furthermore, Abraham was not required to walk through the pieces. And so what is that communicating? That's communicating, one, that God is saying, I am so committed to you. I'm so faithful to you in this covenant of blood that if I fail, let what happened to these animals happen to me. And then two, in not requiring Abraham to walk through the pieces, he's also saying, yet also I will represent you. And so if you fail in your covenant obedience, I will take the hit. So if you fail, let what happened to these animals happen to me in this sacrifice of blood. And so let's go back to Hebrews. The shadow of Genesis 15 is the reality of Hebrews 9. 
ultimately we have Jesus, our great high priest, who is the fulfillment of God's covenant faithfulness to us, taking the hit on him that we deserve due to our covenant disobedience. And as that great high priest, he gently leads us into green pastures and to still waters. H.F. Light, uh, in 1834, wrote this poem, and I just drew out a line to, to close us. He says this, Father, like he tends and spares us, well our feeble frame he knows. In his gentle hand he bears us, rescues us from all our foes. That's the great high priest, the mediator and the advocate of Hebrews 9. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful uh, for all that you've given us and for all that you do for us, um, the things that we recognize and the things that we don't even recognize. And so, God, I pray for conviction and humility in these times. And Lord, that your advocacy and your mediation and your great high priesthood would fortify us with courage um, to listen uh, and to advocate for others. And Lord, ultimately, uh, to love you more as you have commanded in your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen.